Chapter 24 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Manalakis. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 24 by Thomas W. Knox. Street Life. The Bowery by Day and by Night, Life in Baxter and Chatham Streets. Broadway is the artery through which pulsates a great part of the lifeblood of the city. The crowd that constantly surges through it is greater in numbers and steadier in its flow than anything London or Paris can show, and it mixes up the most dissimilar elements of nationality and condition. The night is never so dark or so stormy that the footfall of pedestrians and the rumbling of vehicles are altogether hushed. The life of Broadway varies greatly with the hours of the day. In the very early morning, it is nearly deserted, save by belated wanderers and those whose occupations call them abroad in advance of the great mass of their fellow men. Soon after five o'clock, there are unmistakable signs of movement, and as six o'clock approaches, men of rough garb come from various directions, walking hurriedly along. They are the porters, engine drivers, sweepers, boys, and others whose labors are chiefly manual in the stores and shops that line the great street. As time goes on, this crowd thins and another takes its place. Clerks, shop girls, salesmen, and others who are expected to be on duty at eight o'clock largely compose the new throng. They are followed by those whose duties begin at nine o'clock or thereabouts, and these again by the heads of establishments who think they are in good season if they arrive at their destinations at ten. Later come the owners and magnates whose homes are in the aristocratic part of the city, and who are supposed to do pretty much as they like. They are early if they reach their offices by eleven o'clock, some do not appear until noon, and some only go to business two or three times a week. One is reminded in this connection of the story of the countryman who visited Washington in the time of President Jackson, and on his return home gave to his friends an account of the dinner customs of the capital of the nation. The working men, said he, dine at one o'clock, the clerks at two, the big officers at three, the representatives at four, the senators at five, and the officers of the cabinet at six. What time does old Hickory eat his dinner? asked an open-mouthed listener. Oh, the old man doesn't dine till the next day, was the prompt reply. Until ten o'clock the stream of travel on Broadway is southward, especially in the hours between six and nine. About three o'clock it sets upward, beginning with those who came down latest and ending with those who came first. People of all ages and both sexes compose the never-ending throng, and here may be seen all ages and all conditions of life. The thin-featured shop girl or worker in a downtown factory, whose shawl is drawn around a shrinking form that tells plainly of low diet, hard work, and bad lodgings, is jostled by a woman on whom fortune has smiled, if we may judge her by her costly apparel and the absence of care on her face. Here is a merchant or banker whose fortune is counted in millions. Near him is a clerk whose salary is too small for the comfortable support of his family, and whose head is prematurely whitened by the cares that have fallen upon it. The former walks with an easy, dignified pace while the latter rushes along with his head bowed and his mind evidently in a state of perplexity. Clerks, millionaires, merchants of all kind and degree, 
speculators, idlers, countrymen, and here and there a thief or other crook make up the forms that fill the kaleidoscope to be seen any day along Broadway. In the two miles of distance from the Battery to Union Square, the scene on Broadway is pretty much alike. In Union Square, one finds relief under the shady trees, listening to the play of the fountains, and watching the children, nursemaids, and loungers that fill the place on pleasant afternoons in summer. Is there a prettier bit of green in any city in the whole world than Madison Square? I am not referring to its area, as it is a mere garden patch compared to Central Park, but to its general aspect of beauty in the center of the great city. The trees are leafy and give a welcome shade. The grass is of the deepest green. The paths are of asphalt. The nursemaids are pretty. The children are prettier. And the maidens and matrons that pass are of the prettiest. The statues are historic and patriotic. The buildings that surround and make the square are stately and the carriages and other vehicles that roll along the streets and avenues have a cheerful aspect. If the day is pleasant, the seats in the park are filled, and there are no distinctions so long as there is good behavior. At night, the tramp hies hither for sleep, but for the interference of the gray-coated park policemen, nicknamed sparrow chasers who rap rudely on the boot soles of the slumberer, the tramp would enjoy the park much more than he does. Fifth Avenue is the great show street of the metropolis. Early in the century, fashion had its home at the Battery and on Lower Broadway, and many of the buildings now used for offices and tenements once resounded to the laughter of bells and bows and were the scenes of gay and festive life. But business has invaded these once fashionable quarters, and now all the way to 42nd Street fashion is fast disappearing before the steady advance of commerce. A few of the old houses remain untouched, but the tide is irresistible and the world moves. Superb carriages still roll along the avenue, and in the afternoon there is a throng of promenaders, though it is less dense than the active, rushing throng of Lower Broadway. The Bowery has a course parallel in a general way to the great thoroughfare, Broadway, but the course is the only feature in which a parallel exists. In population, shops, theaters, manners, customs, and everything else, the Bowery and Broadway are wholly dissimilar. The Bowery is intensely German in character. German beer saloons, German shops of every name and kind, German theaters and concert halls, German banks, and other German institutions innumerable abound here. There was nothing more characteristic of the Bowery in its prime than the old Bowery Theater. My first visit to it was made more than 30 years ago, when the place was in the height of its glory. But the scenes are as vivid as though it were but yesterday. Admission to the pit was twelve and a half cents. The pit exists no more in any of the theaters, its place having been taken by the parquet. And instead of being the cheapest part of the house, it is now the dearest, with the exception of the dress circle and private boxes. The pit of the old bowery was generally filled with newsboys, bootblacks, and other youngsters, or with older patrons of the same general character. Nearly all of the patrons of the pit removed their coats on entering and sat upon them throughout the performance partly for the purpose of cushioning the hard seats, and partly to prevent those garments from being stolen. The occupants of the pit were evidently fond of peanuts, as all who could afford the outlay had a paper bag full of them, which were eaten during and between the acts, the shells being thrown on the floor. When a favorite actor entered, he was greeted with three cheers given in a somewhat disorderly fashion. Woe to the unfortunate actor who became unpopular with the boys! 
he was received with catcalls, hisses, and other demonstrations of dissatisfaction, and they were so loud and prolonged that it was impossible for him to proceed with his part. Occasionally he was the recipient of solid remonstrances in addition to vocal ones. They took the shape of eggs or vegetables that had passed their period of usefulness, or of wads made of the bags that had contained peanuts or other delicacies. If an actor became unpopular beyond hope of redemption, his contract was canceled by the manager, as it was useless for him to continue in the theater. All the actors of this theater fully understood the situation. In the language of the time, they played to the pit, just as in many opera houses today, the world over, the tenor and the prima donna are said to sing to the boxes. Heavy tragedy and blood-curdling melodrama were the favorite performances at the Old Bowery. Broadsword duels and the like were sure of applause. In fact, there was a strong predilection for mimic bloodshed or deep-seated quarrels in which heavy-toned actors launched at each other the most bitter imprecations and the most terrible threats. One night I visited this theater to see an actress who had achieved great popularity. In one of the scenes, she sang a pretty little solo and was naturally called upon for an encore. For the encore, she sang Up in a Balloon, at that time a popular air, and one that all the street urchins were humming. When she reached the end of a stanza, she paused a moment and then said, Now, boys, join me in the chorus. The boys responded to the invitation, and the chorus could have been heard a dozen blocks away. It was easy to see how the actress had gained her popularity with the occupants of Pit and Gallery. Even today, one can nowhere else find such cosmopolitan audiences, whether at the theaters which boast that they keep open doors and have full houses all the year round, or in the little halls with a big bar at one end and a tiny stage at the other, which finds it necessary to pander to a man for amusement with drinks. The Bowery Theater still find that it pays best to present heavy tragedy, such as thrilled the soul of the Bowery boy years ago, or to go to the other extreme and dazzle his eyes with a variety show whose changes are kaleidoscopic. In either case, the actors are gorgeous of attire and dash through their parts with a vim which shows that they are not yet wearied out with the race. There is not much in the performance on the stage to cause either laughter or tears. And yet everybody is in the full tide of enjoyment, and the most indifferent of spectators could not but smile at the heartiness of the applause. The boys in the gallery loudly proclaim their sympathies with the heroine, and the people in parquet and orchestra chairs laugh aloud or chatter audibly over the plot. Here is a young couple in shop-worn clothes. She works in a cigar factory, and he is the driver of an ice cart whose sole extravagance is a night every week at the theater, and neither would miss it for the world. Why not? Is the bread of the poor always to be eaten without sauce? The actors in the cheap museums and on the Bowery Music Hall stage are often broken-down men and disappointed women, whose only art now is to hide from the audience that they are near the end of a bitter struggle for daily bread. Many of them live in garrets and sup at the cheapest restaurants, and some of them, I know, started in life with the brightest of hopes. By 11 o'clock, the Bowery's in full blast. The glare of the numerous electric lights is so bright that one has no difficulty in making out the faces and dresses of the nocturnal promenaders. Many odd characters drift past in the crowd. Advertising handbills without number are thrust upon us. Our ears are assailed by the deafening tramp of feet and the never-ending crash of wheels. 
misery and merriment, pomp and poverty in various shapes, file before us. Most of the stores are open. Few of the throng think of going home while shop windows, theater fronts, and concert halls are yet so attractive. And the midnight marauder who can operate only in the early hours of the morning is still slinking behind a coal box around the corner. Concert halls and dime museums thrive on the Bowery. The ordinary concert hall is a place where no respectable man would like to be seen by anyone for whose opinion he has any regard. Their frequenters are dissolute men of all ages, but more often young clerks and mechanics, together with strangers and rural visitors who think they are seeing city life. Beer and cheap liquors are dispensed. Vulgar songs are accompanied by wretched music, and the surroundings and influences are generally low and vile. The attendants at the tables are often disreputable women who are fit associates for dissolute patrons. The monotony of these establishments is occasionally varied by a raid by the police, when every person found within is locked up in the station house and must take his slumbers on a bare plank until next morning, when he may be sent to Blackwell's Island or let off with a heavy fine. Concert halls of this class abound in the Bowery and adjacent streets, and nests of them are to be found in many portions of the city. The dime museums are a conspicuous feature of the Bowery, but they are not entirely confined to it. Their name tells the price of admission, one dime. Their attractions are of the sort classed as freaks, and not infrequently the proprietors combine swindling and robbery with other sources of revenue. Above and on each side of the doors of these museums are large and gaudy paintings on which the wonders to be seen within are elaborately represented and the chief wonder is oftentimes the liberality of the outside display compared with the paucity within. The external promise is far in advance of the internal performance, but if one asks for a return of his money on account of non-fulfillment of contract, he is not likely to get it. The amount of the admission fee is so small that nobody cares to make a fuss about it, and therefore it is of no consequence how much the visitor is defrauded. I have visited a dime museum where not one-fifth of the freaks represented on the outside placards were on exhibition. When I asked where they were, the doorkeeper replied, with a broad grin on his face, that they had gone to the country for their elf. The lilies of the field and the freaks in a dime museum are much alike. No work is done by either. The museum owner, always a handsome man with a fierce mustache and large diamonds, stands near the door, and close to him a second-rate dwarf, dressed as a policeman, club in hand, shouts out directions about keeping order. A mermaid, stuffed and dried, swings from a nail on the wall, and a fat woman, discharged for losing weight, comes in to collect what is due her. The first object that greets you inside is usually the tattooed man. He looks defiant, but he really is cheap, for a method has been discovered of tattooing him by electricity so that a large part of him can be highly ornamented in one afternoon. Next to the tattooed man is the lecturer, a very important being, who explains and dilates upon the attractions of the collection, and who passes with the grace of a Chesterfield from the charms of the fat woman to the rare qualities of the man who eats glass. Then come two dwarfs, who prefer to be alluded to as midgets, and then the albino, a gentleman with pure white hair and pink eyes. The bearded lady, who is to be pitied because she is hardly ever admired and her sex usually doubted, stands beside the living skeleton. 
here too is said to be the smallest living man in the world. You are attracted to him by his sharp, squeaky voice, and by the remarks of the eager crowd gathered around him. At first it is difficult to believe that the queer little thing, with a ridiculous little silk hat on the back of his head, is really a man. He tells you that he weighs ten pounds. Next to him is the fattest of all women. She is advertised to weigh half a ton, and probably actually does weigh about eight hundred pounds. She looks very unhappy. A fat freak thinks but little, dies young, and is worried in her last moments by the thought that her coffin must be lowered out of the window by ropes. The strong man who lifts tremendous weights is near the fat woman. Close beside him is a small band discoursing discordant music, and as the man drops the weights on the floor to show by the noise how heavy they are, four bass drums are pounded simultaneously, which makes the weights sound very heavy indeed. The expansionist, who is able to inflate his chest in a wonderful way, stands beside the turtle boy, who derives his title and his income from the fact that, apparently, he has no legs, and that his feet are attached directly to his body and present an unpleasant imitation of the flippers of a turtle. Other freaks are numerous. The egg crank, who eats 120 eggs. The dog-faced boy. The wild men of Borneo the living half-man whose misfortune it was to be cut into by a buzzsaw below the waist, the transparent man, the human pincushion, a remarkable young man who allows you to stick needles into his breast and arms at will, the human claw-hammer, a handy man around the house who drives tacks in the carpet with his thumb and forces large nails through three-inch planks with his hand, the human anvil who allows a friend to break large stones on his chest with a sledgehammer, are all here. Snake charmers are numerous, and leopard children, men who walk on red-hot iron, spotted boys, porcupine men, two-headed dogs, and other wonderful attractions are often found in these museums. Freaks are divided into two classes, those that are genuine and those that are false. Among the real freaks may be classed the fat woman, the dwarf, the albino, the living skeleton, the spotted boy, the glass eater, the giant, and the legless wonder. Among the bogus freaks are the Circassian girls, the tattooed men, the sword swallowers and fire eaters, the Fiji Island cannibals, the wild men of Borneo, and the survivors of great accidents like the Johnstown Flood, and so forth. Sword swallowers and fire eaters have a comparatively easy trade, which plenty of men might follow. Tattooed men can be produced as rapidly as they are wanted. One man in the tattooing business says that he can produce several South Sea Islanders every week and can transform any girl into a South Sea princess without much trouble or pain. These human curiosities travel from one museum to another, stopping one week here and two weeks there, and each manager strives to secure for himself the freak who stands for the superlative in his own particular realm of freakdom. It is characteristic of the Bowery that it has its own artists in the criminal professions and tolerates no others. They may live on the side streets, but they operate on the great thoroughfare. There is a battalion of tramps, also, who never stray outside this charmed circle. Some of them I have known for twenty years, and have watched them step down lower and lower until their feet are close to the threshold of the morgue. One, a gray-haired and bent mendicant, tottered ahead of me tonight, little dreaming that I can recall the day when his name was famous in literature. To the world he has been dead these score of years, and he will be nothing more than a mere name and remembrance when his tired bones are laid to rest 
in the city's cemetery of the outcast. At yonder dark corner is a female beggar of most disreputable appearance, holding her hand out dumbly and keeping her head bowed. When the half-paralyzed wretch lifted a pair of great black eyes and thanked me for the silver dropped in her palm, I recognized in this human wreck a famous actress who had once been the star of a spectacular troupe. Diamonds and gold had been lavished upon her, but she had spent with a free hand, and when sickness came and her beauty departed, her friends went with it. For years she depended upon the stray bounty of her old admirers, and haunted their offices until driven away by the police, and at last drifted to the Bowery to beg by night. As for the lager beer saloons, their name is Legion. The German is dearly fond of the beverage, which had its origin in his native land, and in the evening he often brings his whole family to saloons dignified by the name of gardens. There are two such gardens that can each accommodate a thousand or more patrons at once. They are comparatively quiet during the day, but when evening comes they fill with people. The orchestra at one end of the vast hall fills the air with music, and the audience fills itself with beer. On every side are family groups, father, mother, and children, all merry, all sociable, all well-behaved and quiet. The Germans are proud of keeping up the respectability of the place to which they bring their female friends and relatives. Running into the Bowery from each side are numerous streets and alleys. Many of them are the abodes of vice and crime, of honest and dishonest poverty, and others contain the homes of artisans, day laborers, working girls and women, who make up the throng that presses along the sidewalks in the evening and especially on the last evening of the week. On Saturday night, the working people, most of whom have received their wages, come out to spend their hard-earned money in luxuries or necessities. The shops are open until midnight, and some of them later still, and at every step one encounters persistent and noisy peddlers of all sorts. The beer saloons and other drinking places are brilliantly lighted, and the sound of their jingling pianos, the squeak of violins, or the discordant notes of an accordion come from cellar dives and low resorts. Here in low and dingy beer shops and dirtier cellars lurk some of the worst specimens of our foreign population. And uncanny forms of evil stop a moment to stare at you before they suddenly dive down dimly lighted stairways or slink around the corners. Gamblers, pickpockets, and other crooks abound and are ready to take under their wing anyone who will trust himself to their care. The soap, hair oil, tooth wash, or cutlery peddlers occupy corners wherever the police will permit them to stand, vociferously crying their wares. Flaming torches light up their stands with a fitful glare and reveal every line of their faces with the distinctness of a photograph. An interesting night worker is the man who delves in ash barrels and boxes or in dust heaps for whatever may be deemed worth picking up. Everything is fish that comes to his net. Cigar stumps, empty bottles, bones with bits of meat clinging to them, scraps of old clothing, anything and everything that can possibly have the least value is taken in. Along the Bowery can occasionally be seen a rag picker from Baxter Street searching the gutters with a lantern which he carries at the end of a string, so that he can hold it close to the ground without stooping. This is an idea borrowed from the chiffonier of Paris and not at all a bad one. Not a few of the rag pickers of New York have graduated from the gutters of the French capital and drifted thence across the sea. The Bowery has its social divisions just as we find them in the aristocratic parts of the city. 
There are race and class distinctions, and there is also the distinction of color no less marked than anywhere else in the land. White men have their resorts, and so have the colored, and each holds itself aloof from the other. Not long ago there was a curious resort on Baxter Street, not far from the Bowery, from which the thoroughfare much of its patronage was drawn, known among white men as the Black and Tan, which was not altogether a safe place for a well-dressed man to enter alone, especially at night. Off from the street was a long narrow bar room, with a low ceiling and a very showy bar. The liquors sold were of the cheapest quality. A noticeable feature of the bar was a large club within easy reach of the proprietor, and there was a club for each of his assistants. These clubs were of great use in preserving order among the patrons, who not infrequently fell into discord. Most of the customers were Negroes, but there were Malays, Chinese, Lascars, and other Asiatics as well. And on one evening not long ago, two American Indians were found there, imbibing firewater of a dangerous character. Here and there was a white man who had no prejudice as to color, and there were women of all shades from ebony black to the lightest of tan colors. Most of the latter were flashily dressed, but the coal-black ones were generally in plain attire, though there was often an abundance of cheap jewelry which shone conspicuously against the dark skin. Many of these negresses had their heads wrapped in bright-colored, old-fashioned bandanas, and their accent revealed the fact that they have drifted from southern states since the war. At the end of the bar was a swinging door leading into a rear room from whence, during a recent visit, came the hum of voices. Even were there no voices, one might easily surmise that the room had many occupants, for at frequent intervals a colored waiter came out with orders which were quickly filled at the bar. Quietly following him, one found himself in a room which was lighted by numerous kerosene lamps. It had the same low ceiling, and the walls were covered with cheap and gaudily colored sporting pictures. Around the room were several small tables at which dusky negroes were deeply engrossed in card playing. At one side of the room was a crowd surrounding an old stout negro who sat behind a table which was marked off into six squares by means of lines drawn with white paint. The squares were numbered from one to six, and the game consisted in betting pennies or nickels on the numbers and deciding the course of fortune by means of a dice box. Walk up, gents, and try your luck the stout darky shouted as the playing lagged. Here's your chance to make a fortune. Walk around the room with your gal and play every time you come along. Peggy, don't your fellow want to play? The query was addressed to an ebony maiden of thirty or more summers, who had in tow a melee sailor with rings in his ears. Peggy led him to the table and suggested that he play a nickel for luck. He plunged a hand into a deep pocket and produced a nickel which he placed on the table. The stout negro rattled the box and threw the contents on the table. "'You're a winner, two for one,' he said to the melee, pushing back that gentleman's wager and two nickels with it. Another rattle of the dice box followed, and another invitation for someone to make his fortin. Peggy nodded to one of the waiters, who was at her side in an instant. She suggested two beers, and the winnings of her melee acquaintance were speedily invested in liquor. Then she proposed that they have a dance. He assented, and she led the way to the end of the room and down a narrow stairway to another apartment, which was designated the ballroom, from whence came the sound of cheap music and a shuffling of feet. The music was produced by a strong-armed negro, 
energetically thumping a piano which was badly out of tune. An old gray-haired colored man sawing the strings of a cracked violin, a gay-colored youth with distended cheeks blowing a wheezy flute, and another youth with closed eyes and head fallen to one side, industriously picking a banjo. However, none of the dancers were inclined to complain of the quality of the music, and the players seemed to be entirely engrossed in producing the greatest possible amount of noise. There was not much space for dancing, and the crowd was dense. As they shuffled along the floor, the dancers jostled each other, but nobody objected, and there was a general appearance of good nature. Now and then, some dusky visitor got into a quarrel with another and resorted to blows or pulled out a razor, the favorite weapon of colored citizens throughout the country. Some of the seafaring men in the ballroom carried knives, and when knives and razors began to flash in the sickly gaslight of one of these resorts, it is time for all hands to leave. Whenever the orchestra paused, the waiter, whose badge of office was a white apron, vociferously shouted, Come, gents, give your orders. Treat your partners in this year dance. Keep your gents well aisled. Take beer or something and be quick about it. The cool night air was refreshingly welcome as we emerged from the black and tan and wended our way to Chatham Street, long famous for its old clothes shops and its stores of cheap clothing. The shopkeepers are mostly Israelites, but enterprising Irishmen, Germans, and Americans have entered the field, and some of them have made a success that is envied by their Hebrew neighbors. In former times, one ran considerable risk in getting inside of one of these establishments. If he refused to purchase, he was in danger of being violently robbed. If he dared to make complaint, he had no witnesses to support his statements, while all the attaches of the place swore to a contrary state of affairs. But a vigorous police have changed things for the better. The purchaser of clothing on Chatham Street is pretty certain to be swindled, as the goods sold are of the cheapest sort, badly made and of wretched materials. Clothing has been bought there which was pasted or glued, not sewn, together. It answered fairly well if worn on a dry day, but unfortunate was the purchaser who ventured out in it in a rainstorm. The clothing dealers on Chatham Street possess the gift of Blarney to a high degree. They have been known to convince a customer that a coat three or four sizes too large for him fits splendid. They stand him before a mirror, and as the customer observes the front of the garment, the dealer gathers in a handful at the back. When the buyer is in a position to see the reflection of the back, the crafty swindler performs the same trick with the front and adds, Oh, mein friend, I wish you had eyes in the back of your head. Choose to see how splendid that coat fits between those shoulders. Sometimes the dealer plays on the cupidity of a customer by putting a well-filled pocketbook in the pocket of the garment he is trying to sell. While the customer is trying on a coat, the dealer exclaims, There was a nice gentleman, Mr. Ashterbilt. He was from Fifth Avenue. Maybe you knowed him. Comed here last week and buys that same coat. And this morning he brings him back and says the goat was too tight already around the arms. He takes another goat, not quite so good as this, and pays me ten dollars to boot, just because he wear that goat for days, and that makes the goat second hand. That goat, my friend, just fits you splendid. I want my brother to see that fit. Jacob, do you come right away here a minute, and just see that goat fit on this gentleman's pack. Now, my friend, I sells the goat to you so cheap as never was, adding in a whisper, cheaper than to mine own brother, but say nothings. 
Meantime, the customer feels through the pockets. The dealer makes sure he does so without appearing to direct the movement of his hand. The hand comes in contact with the plump pocketbook, which was probably forgotten by Mr. Ashterbilt. If the customer is honest, he disappoints the dealer by bringing the article to light. But if he is not averse to a dishonest penny, he buys the coat and departs with it as quickly as possible. Later on, he finds that he has paid an exorbitant price for a poor coat containing an old pocketbook stuffed with brown paper. End of chapter 24.